It is the 20th of May, and welcome to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. We broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern Time, 11.30 Central Time, every Wednesday from the first week of May to the first week of September. I'm one of your hosts today, Ben Phillips is my name, um, from Michigan State University Extension. Co-hosting with me today is Ben Whirling, uh, also from MSU. Um, and Mike Reinke from MSU is our Zoom engineer today. Uh, ben, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, thank you, Ben. Today's topic is the white thread, early season weed management. And while that ad was um, too good to be true and just a little bit of fun, hopefully in a hard time, um, the our guests today aren't too good to be true. Um, so our first guest today will be Dr. Dan Brainerd of the Department of Horticulture at Michigan State University. Um, Dan's recent work has looked at different things you can do ahead of seed bed prep um, and then combine them with different mechanical weeding tools to make vegetables. Our second guest will be Dr. Steve Myers. Steve is a new weed scientist at Purdue University with a background in vegetables. Um, and his current work is focusing on um, helping growers use our existing herbicide tools safely and effectively, and then also doing the work we need to add new herbicides to our toolbox. Um, but really, Ben and I really want you to encourage you to submit your questions um, for Steve and Dan. Um, to do that, put them into the Q&A box. Um, make sure to upvote any questions you see that you really want answered so they rise to the top of the list. And in the back half of the show today, um, Steve and Dan will um, answer those questions. Um, so with that, um, Dan, I wanted to ask you our first question. Um, what are some things that growers can do um, ahead of making a seed bed to make it as weed-free as possible? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Thanks for inviting me. Um, seems funny to be talking about physical disturbance of soil after five inches of rain here in Michigan, so they're limits to what can be done, but um, we've been doing a lot of work lately with, uh, and over the years with stale, what I call stale and false seed beds. A lot of people have heard the term stale seed bedding. Um, and this is, I think, commonly known to a lot of growers, but maybe a little bit underexploited. So I just wanted to mention that approach. Basically with a stale seed bed, if possible, and it's not always possible, but if possible, trying to prepare the bed several weeks in advance um, getting the seed bed prepped as well as possible. So your secondary or primary and secondary tillage, depending what the crop is, there may be different levels of intensity required. Um, but then encouraging as many weeds to germinate as possible before you even plant so that those can be killed off. So the idea is basically to drain any weed seeds that are in that top inch or two inches of seeds such that after you plant the crop, they're not coming up. Of course, your strategy is going to vary depending if you're a conventional grower using herbicides or you're an organic grower, but the basic idea is the same. Encourage weed seeds to germinate, flush them out of that surface zone, and then kill them one way or another. Um, so I could go into great, much more detail if you're interested, but that's the basic concept. Um, I wanted to ask you too, Dan, just as a follow-up, um, I know on a smaller scale you've been working with some tarping. Is that... Yeah, so in terms of how you go about 
killing the weeds after you've prepped your seed bed. If you're a small scale grower, organic grower, there's interest in increased interest in tarping. And so essentially prepare the seed bed and then put, um, you know, six mil black plastic over it. And this helps in a couple of ways. It retains moisture and heats things up. So you get more weed seeds germinating. And then in the absence of light, they have no place to go. So they die. If you can have that black plastic on for, depending on the conditions, you know, as little as five or six days, ideally seven to 10 days, you'll get a flush of weeds come up and, and die. Um, so that's one approach. Solarization would be the other way to go. If you have warm conditions, you could put clear plastic and that does a similar thing. Moisture, heat, get a lot of weeds to germinate. Uh, hopefully it gets hot enough, it kills them. If it doesn't, then you peel the plastic off and you got to deal with it some other way. But uh, yeah, that's a popular approach for organic growers. You know, shallow repeated cultivation is uh, another thing that's typically more of what we call a false seed bed. So prep the bed and then as shallowly as possible, repeated tillage to sequentially stimulate germination, kill the weeds. And then often there'd be like a rolling basket for the first few passes to reform a, a, a soil seed context to get more weeds to flush. For conventional growers, of course, you could use herbicides, broad spectrum herbicides right before planting or before emergence. Um, and of course, there's a million different ways to combine these approaches with reemergence. Um, and yeah, depending what your system is and your crop, a lot of variations. Well, thank, thank you, Dan. Um, ben, why don't we transition to talking about um, um, herbicides? Cool. Yeah, I wanted to add just a, a bit to what Dan said about tarping and, and his experience with basically short interval tarping. I've uh, encountered a, a number of growers now who have engaged in like full winter tarping, basically tarping in the fall, um, leaving it all winter. Um, and then uh, everything that you said would happen does happen at that point. They, they do get white thread weeds that don't really do much and they die. And uh, I guess one advantage I've heard touted is that the soil is pretty much ready to go uh, under those tarps. Um especially if it's wet it because it's not permeable so it's basically ready to go um yeah i uh anyway so steven um we were talking about the weather a little bit before and it's it's a bit wet uh sometimes it's not wet so uh how does the spring weather affect the activity of pre-emergent herbicides are there any patterns we can draw here with uh, modes of action or types and so, um, you know, you posed this question to me about the weather this spring. And, and when I uh, heard that, I, I was kind of thinking, you know, how do prees react under cool and, and wetter than average conditions? Um, and I guess the first thing that's important to talk about is, is when we talk about pre-emergence herbicides, they're, they're soil applied products and they require what we call an activation. And essentially that, that uh, kind of touches on what, what Dan talked about is getting that herbicide into the top inch or two of uh, the soil surface where weed seeds are actively germinating. So this can usually be accomplished by, you know, half an inch, three quarters of an inch is typically sufficient to move those herbicides down into that layer of soil where the, the weed seeds are germinating. Um, it can also be done with um, a, a shallow mechanical cultivation as well to get it down into the soil. Um, so there are situations where uh, if you have a, a really water-soluble herbicide and, and coarse textured soil like sand, 
there's a possibility you could, with excessive rainfall, you know, flush some of the herbicide past that layer where the weeds are actually germinating and, and not get sufficient control. Um, another thing to think about is um, in a spring that's particularly cool is if the weed seeds are actively germinating. We need a, the herbicide is, is taken up either in the, the seed root, um, which is the radical or the cotyledons, the seed leaves, or, or the hypocotyl tissue, which is kind of that stem tissue right on that germinating uh, weed seed. And so if, if, if the seed is not actively germinating at the time the herbicide is, is applied and, and in that soil layer, um, we also may not see control. So those are some of the things to think about. Um, the other thing that we can worry about with regards to herbicides applied um, under cooler than normal conditions and, and, and wet conditions is uh, the effect that it might have on the crop. So if, if we're talking about um, seeded crops, for example, as they're germinating in cooler soil, um, it's going to take them longer to emerge. And so they're actually in contact with that herbicide um, for a longer period of time than they would be under, under warmer conditions. Um, the same thing is somewhat true for transplanting crops. Um, that root ball is also going to be in contact with that treated soil for a longer period of time. And the plant itself is growing more slowly and may not be uh, as able to metabolize the herbicide or, or sequester it um, like it normally would to, uh, to prevent it from having a negative impact on the crop. So that's kind of where my mind goes when we talk about kind of cool wet conditions with regards to pre-emergence herbicides. Great. Um, you uh, you had mentioned solubility being one factor in in leaching. I think is is where you were calling that out. Where the basically the the chemical can go from the soil surface or that first quarter inch, and they go goes too low uh, outside of the zone where we want to kill weeds, and maybe even into the zone where our crop roots are going to be, and it could hurt the crop. Um, are there any characteristics of herbicides that growers can pay attention to? Um, where they can they can uh, make some decisions on whether that would be a problem or not, like maybe uh, the solubility of a of a product that's already a granular or a dry flowable versus like an EC or, or an already a liquid product. Are there any um, conclusions to draw on on that? Yeah, so I think solubility is one aspect of, of a, herbicide, a herbicide to consider, but there are others as well. And so the, the other two that kind of come to my mind are adsorption. So how readily is that herbicide likely to be bound in the soil once it gets in the soil? So um, in particularly what we think about herbicides being bound to is organic matter and clays. Um, and that's one of the reasons on a lot of the herbicide labels, you'll see different rates and a higher rate for soils with higher organic matter. And yeah, I see that a lot. Yeah. So that's because some of that, some portion of that herbicide is going to be bound to the soil and not available to, to the, the weeds um, for control. The other thing to think about is, um, is uh, actually desorption. So, so even though some of these herbicides get tightly bound to the soil, um, some of them are pretty much stuck there irreversibly while others have the ability to kind of come off that, that soil um, and kind of be, you know, quote, reactivated. Um, so those are some things to consider. And one example, um, for, uh, if we think about something like Paraquat, for example, it's highly water soluble, um, but it's also really tightly bound to the soil. So once it gets in the ground, it essentially is inactivated. 
Um, another one that I tend to think about is um, is clomisome or command. Um, it's it's also moderately water soluble, but it's less tightly bound to the soil. So it's possible to see kind of later in the season, if you get a heavy rainfall, you might see a, a, a late flush of, of white on either the weeds or the crop. And it's uh, because you kind of, you've got enough water to kind of move that off the soil and back into solution where it can be taken up by the crop and the weeds. So, um, so solubility is important, but so are uh, adsorption to the, the soil and, and the ability to come off that soil particles. Yeah. I've seen that happen in peppers uh, would command. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know what to make of that because it was later on during the season. Um, where does atrazine fall in that in that spectrum then? Because that's a long rotational herbicide that you you know. So is it one of those types that uh, de deabsorb desorb? Is that the word you used? Yeah, desorption. That's that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know if Dan may know that or not. I, I, I'm. I uh, hadn't worked in corn a lot, and you know, atrazine is is really specific to corn. Uh, it has a reputation for being highly water soluble, and in fact, you know, one of the herbicides that we worry about uh, leaching through the soil um, column. But as far as how tightly it's it's bound to the soil, um, I I don't know offhand. Okay, no problem. Yeah, Dan, you you had mentioned earlier, well, we got five inches of rain. That it's kind of a joke to think about dragging steel through the field right now, right? But what if it was just a half inch or or an inch and a half and or nothing? Does that affect how you go? Uh, yeah, I mean, most tools work best with dry soil conditions. Uh, I think of things like flex line weeders. I mean, it's partly just not going in the field when it's wet, and you're going to cause compaction issues with tires and so forth. Um, depending on the soil type, there's it's not a super easy answer. I mean, generally speaking, drier is better. But we've seen in some situations with things like finger weeders, if it's dry and crusted, you get shattering of the soil and clumps of weeds that stick to it. So sometimes it's better to have a little bit more surface moisture and you see the tools work better at breaking and crumbling the soil and killing weeds when there's a little bit of moisture. But it's very texture dependent, I would say. Um, you know, some situations too on a, a heavier soil. Yeah, again, you get... Uh, We've tried to run a basket weeder through some of our soils at the Hort farm that were heavy clay that were seriously crusted and it just couldn't penetrate. So again, having a little bit of moisture or a more aggressive tool um, like a spider gang or, or uh, something else that can penetrate um, better than those tools that have more surface area and therefore putting less pressure on them. So Dan, you mentioned a couple of different tools there. I know you've been working, um, looking at, all those tools individually and together. Um, so if, if we're having weed escapes in our early, early sown veggies, um, as we undoubtedly will, what, what combinations of tools um, are you most excited about using? For some of our early sown crops like beets and carrots and, um, and things like that. Yeah, again, it's a, it's a challenging question. Depends a lot on your <clears throat> soil type and your specific weeds and the stage. So there's different tools that are optimal given different conditions. I would say um, <clears throat> in terms of baseline tools, most growers are pretty good with weeds between the crop row, sweeps and knives and, you know, lillistons and so forth that can be fairly aggressive. The trick is controlling those weeds that are right near the crop without killing the crop. And there's not a lot of magic there. You need a crop that's a little bit bigger than the weed and then there's some tools that work better than others. I think my favorite, and it's been my favorite for a while, and I haven't seen things that work much better in that in-row zone is a finger weeder. 
for many crop situations in that it's uh, relatively inexpensive. It's relatively forgiving, so it doesn't do too much damage. It's very versatile. You can change the distance and the angle to get either more hilling action or more scrubbing or uprooting action. Um, and so I, I really like that tool. doesn't work in all situations. If you've got a very leafy plant, you know, you can run into problems. So sometimes thing like a torsion weeder that can slip under the weeds might work better. Um, but I would say finger weeders are <clears throat> among the in-row tools, my, my, my favorite at this point. Would, would you have any tips, Dan, is if folks start out using the finger weeders for how to start out cautiously and then refine it? Yeah, I mean, you can move the tips further apart. And so we always recommend you start slow and with the least aggressive settings and then uh, either speed up or make them more aggressive and observe. And once you start <clears throat> killing the crop, <laughs> back off a little bit. So depending what your crop situation is, uh, you know, either you get 100% weed kill before you start killing the crop and you can stop there or you start killing the crop and then you got to ask yourself, is the savings in labor time from hand weeding uh, <clears throat> outweigh the costs in terms of potential loss to the crop? And sometimes a lot of grower, organic growers are willing to lose 10% of their carrot or beets, especially if it came up thick. Uh, you know, you don't know if it has great control over your planting densities. So uh, that's one, one trick is to plant it a little heavy and then you can be a little bit more aggressive if you need to. And are, are there any um, are there any crops, Dan, that you've looked at where you feel like though you've had the most success with those tools? Or uh, like I said, the, the bigger the difference between the crop and the weed, the more success you'll have. And so, transplanted crops relatively easy. Uh, large seeded crops, corn, beans, uh, cucurbits that come up pretty quick. As long as you get in there early when the weeds are white thread or cotyledon, got a little size to it. Uh, they work really well. On the other hand, things like carrots or beets that come up slow, unless you did a really good job of stale seed bedding uh, it's, and everything works perfectly, you're going to run into issues. We've been looking at finding beet and carrot cultivars that are quicker to come up and have more leaf area early and can tolerate some of that punishment. But a lot of the commercially available uh, direct seeded small crops are very tender and difficult. So you might, you know, even the best growers end up having to go in with uh, their, you know, organic growers with some hand weeding. Dan, hearing you talk about that reminds me of a, an anecdote from one of my ag and bioengineering colleagues. They say when it comes to mechanical weed control, it's important to have a tractor operator and not a tractor driver because of the, the yeah, the slim line there <laughs> between controlling the weed and damaging the crop. So. That always sticks out in my mind when I think about mechanical weed control. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think the technology is advancing quickly. You see a lot of news and uh, a, a lot of news articles about robotic weeders and so forth. I, I think uh, uh, camera guidance and so forth lets you get in real close and remove that human error element if you're trying to steer. You still got a ways to go. And I think uh, you know things like finger weeders are still... I stood in a field in Switzerland and a fancy farm that had the robot robovators and mechanical robotic beaters right next to the finger weeder which was going five times as fast just as effective and much cheaper so thank you dan um our, our last question for you guys um was um, how does it, using shallow cultivation to control weeds interact with the use of pre-emergence herbicides so 
one question that I know Ben and I have both run across occasionally is by doing channel cultivation with something like a basket weeder, are we going to break the weed barrier provided by our pre-emerge herbicides? So is that something that growers should be worried about or is it something that's not really a risk? And either of you can feel free to answer. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, kind of take, take uh, an, an approach at that one. So um, when it comes to the combination of, of kind of mechanical weed control and, and chemical control or herbicides, um, you know, the first thing I thought of were, were two examples of where they, they kind of complement each other. And one is with, um, if, you, if you apply a soil applied pre-emergence herbicide, specifically one of the DNA or yellow herbicides, the dinitroanalins, uh, that can be prone to degradation by sunlight. Um, if you don't get a rainfall in a timely fashion to move that product into the soil, um, you can actually, you know, physically incorporate it into the soil. So that'd be an example of uh, kind of hmm. the two together, um, really with the, the goal of getting the herbicide into the soil where the, the weeds are oh. germinating. Um, the second example that, that I tend to think of are when we use pre-emergent herbicides um, that have no post-emergence activity. So in that case, um, using the two in combination is also beneficial. So using a cultivation or mechanical uh, weed control event to create weed-free or near-weed-free um, environment to then apply that pre-emergence herbicide to try to maintain that weed-free state um, you know, through canopy closure or the, the critical period for weed control, whatever your target is. So those are two areas where I, I kind of think that the two work hand in hand pretty well together. Thank you, Steve. Dan, did you have anything else to add? Or? I thought that was a great answer. I mean, I guess one thing to keep in mind whenever you cultivate is you're potentially redistributing weed seed and stimulating weed germination. So um, you're going to typically see a flush of weeds. So once you've committed, often once you've committed to cultivating once, you got to be ready <clears throat> to come back for the next flush. And depending on what your herbicides are, um, you know, you, if you don't cultivate with depth in mind, you could redistribute the or dilute the herbicide. So there's some things that could go wrong. But I think Stephen made an excellent point of uh, examples where um, <clears throat> they can work hand in hand. Excellent. And Steve, I was just curious, is Prowl an example of a, a DNA herbicide, dinitroanilin? Yeah, yeah. So that, that would be Prowl, uh, Arislin, uh, Treflan, those, those kind of products. Okay, thank you. I've got a follow-up for you guys. Um, so we, I think, without having said it, I think that we've mostly just been talking right now about uh, bare soil production for the most part. Um, what about... What about folks who may be, uh, may be planting in or trying or they have a goal in mind to um, bring in more no-till or strip-till type uh, production in their vegetable farm? Um, what kind of uh, – I, I think when I, when I think of no-till, I mean complete no-till, I think like you're probably pretty well excluded from mechanical controls at that point, um, especially when the – Seed, the seedlings are so young and you could disturb this residue that might move another piece of residue that moves another piece of residue that knocks over your seedling. But I don't know, maybe I'm not thinking of it correctly. Um, are you limited to chemical controls when you're doing something like a no-till where you've got a thick mulch or something like that? Well, 
I think you can't mechanically cultivate and call it no-till, so that one's out. Uh, <laughs> you have a thick enough mulch. <laughs> you have a thick enough mulch. You may be able to get away with that herbicides, but that's really challenging in our climate, generally speaking, and it also often leads to some problems with the crop itself. Um, in, in warmer climates, where you can get you know four tons plus of dry matter from a rye crop and mow it or crimp it and plant in a crop that can make it through that mulch like a corn or a bean or have a way of transplanting it, you can have some pretty good systems that are potentially herbicide-free, but it can also go bad in a hurry if you don't have enough residue. And we've seen that a lot in Michigan. So having some kind of backup system, if, if you don't have enough residue, there, there are high residue cultivators, which can kind of uh, reduce the amount of tillage. It wouldn't be no-till, but it's still reduced till. Okay. Of course, having herbicides as a backup is is uh, makes it all, a whole lot easier. A couple other things to think about is is if you do have a situation where you have a, you know a cover crop and you, and you roll or crimp it, um, that it, that's organic matter. And so if, if you there are certain herbicides that may be bound to that that um, that roller crimped layer of organic matter, which is your your uh, uh, terminated cover crop. Um, so that's, that's one thing to be aware of. The other thing here, hearing you ask that question, Ben, reminds me of um, a lot of times when we are trying to encourage growers to take advantage of biological control, um, tillage plays a role there as well. Um, because the more, so when the, the seeds rain off of the, the weeds, um, if, they're, if they're at the soil surface, they can be consumed by different birds and insects and, and rodents and that kind of thing. So um when I when a grower asks about biological control, I, I try to encourage them to delay fall tillage, um, counter to what our plant pathology <laughs> specialists usually recommend. But uh, mm. that's another thing to think about with regard to tillage and, and weeds. Oh, I'd never thought of that. Uh, you brought up a question that I had had years ago and didn't even think to ask, though, about pre-emergent herbicides over top of a mulch like that. Um, it's a question. Yeah, I, I've I've seen it work, and then didn't question it too much. And I've also seen it not work, and then wondered why, uh, even if it was the same program. So it made me wonder how, if rain's even more important in a situation like that than it might normally be, because it's got to get down below the mulch layer to actually be working at the soil level on on weed on weed seeds. I would I would think. Um, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, we uh, and we've been doing some long-term trials at the Swimrex station, and typically using dual and a number of the vegetables in rotation. And you can see very clearly the same rate where we have residue, not nearly as effective in the in the conventional plot. So you either need to bump the rate up a little bit, or yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's some strategies of trying to wash that through the mulch, but uh, something to keep. Interesting stuff, guys. Um, Steve and Dan, I really want to I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, so thank you for your time time today. We really appreciate it. And um, we we're going to do next um, is move on to Q and A. But first, Ben, what what do we have coming on tap for next week? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Next week we're going to be interviewing Brad Burgerford from Ohio State University Extension and Nathan Johaning from the University of Illinois Extension. And we'll be talking about pumpkin planting secrets, uh, revealing all the elements of pumpkin planting for, for the fall market. Uh, so you can listen to that, same place, same time. 
glveg.net slash listen. If you've got questions you want to send ahead of time, you can email those to greatlakesvegwg at gmail.com. And as always, this production is supported by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. Okay, now we're going to do live Q&A. Um, we've got a couple questions in the chat or in the Q&A box, but we're going to start off with a question that was actually called in uh, to me. And I recorded it and I'll play it so you all can hear it. Um, and it's directed towards uh, uh, Steve here. It's about a herbicide. It's a herbicide question. Hello, my name is Jeff from uh, Beaverton, Michigan. I have a pumpkin farm and I was going to put pumpkins on plastic this year. My question is, um, I have some issues with nut sedge. And I was wondering if I can spray dual under plastic. <laughs> you, you get that one, Stephen? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, so I guess there's a, there's a couple things to make uh, the listeners aware too. So dual or dual magnum in this case is uh, is labeled in a number of states through what we call a 24C special local need label. And Michigan happens to be one of the states that has uh, a dual magnum label and has pumpkin on the label. So um, it's important to know if we've got folks from different states for them to be aware that uh, that dual magnum may or may not be registered in their state um, and, and, and they need to be aware of what crops it's registered in. So um, it is labeled for pumpkin in Michigan on that label. Um, the label itself doesn't explicitly say that you can't use it under plastic mulch, um, but it also doesn't list it as a, as a, as a method of, of application. Um, it is listed for application to summer squash under plastic, um, but, but not pumpkin. So uh, I, I don't have any experience. I can't vouch for the, the crop safety in pumpkin under plastic. I think he's, he's got the right track, though, which is to try to, to manage the net sedge pre-emergence. Um, net sedge is one of those weeds that doesn't care if you have plastic mulch. It'll grow through the mulch. It'll grow through the, the cantaloupe or the watermelons that are sitting on that mulch. Um, it's a very tenacious weed. Um, so, you know, trying to have a, a system in place that manages it pre-emergence and post is, is very helpful. Um, the, the one thing I would recommend is, so even in my experience, best case scenario with dual magnum, which is one of the herbicides we have in vegetables that, that, that says control, um, best case scenario, I usually get 60 to 70% control is, is all. That's, that's mm. the and from, you know, if, if it's activated and it's put out before the nut sedge has emerged, um, which is not, not fantastic. So one of those areas where recommending integrated weed management practices is really important. And so um, one of the things that I like to encourage people to do, if you have a, a field that's infested with nut sedge, but all your other fields are clean, um, you know, quote clean, make sure you remove any pieces of nut sedge from discs or, or plows or anything like that before you move out of that field or move it from an infested field to a clean field. Um, the other thing that, that's really advantageous for net sage control is uh, crop rotation. So rotating to, to corn or beans where the crops are really competitive and we have registered and efficacious or effective herbicides for net sedge is, is really important. And it, it's important to note that with a perennial weed like net sedge, it may take two or three years before you can depending on the population, uh, knock it back um, before you feel comfortable going back into a, a specialty crop. 
Um, at least that's been my experience. Okay, great, great. Um, yeah, thank you, Steve, for answering a question that uh, isn't from your state, but has to do with that other state's uh, special label. Uh, I'll just I'll just let the audience know that uh, we I I communicated with Jeff before this call with some other weed scientists from Michigan as well. So Steve has been uh, pretty well served, I think. Um, but if you've got, uh, as Steve mentioned, a pretty specific herbicide question that does pertain to a, um, a special local needs label in your state, it's uh, it's always good to reach out to the resources within your state because they probably know best. So thanks for handling that, Steve. Um, all right, we got a we got a question here in the in the Q and A that's been upvoted. Um, uh, here it is: What's your take on robotic weeder technology uh, that you've seen? Uh, are you excited about it? Uh, will we see widespread use in the next decade? Um, <clears throat> I'm excited about it. I think we will see gradual increase in use, especially with uh, cost of hand weeding and interest in organics. Another thing I like about some of the technologies is there are not many, but I think there's some coming online that are sort of scale neutral in the sense that they can be used from very small scale out in the garden up to larger scale. I've got uh, one right now in my garden. I'm stuck at home from the coronavirus and got a little, it's basically a, a Roomba from Franklin Robotics that roams around. It's got a little weed whacker on the bottom. It senses the crop, moves around. It's solar powered. Um, it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. It doesn't control all the weeds and it only gets weeds at very small stage. But it's one example of a type of robotic weeder that will likely get and already is be getting scaled up to uh, use in other crops. Um, many other examples that are exciting. I think at this point, I haven't seen too many that are really commercially viable for our scale farmer in Michigan. Uh, like I mentioned earlier with the things like the finger weeder, I think some of the steering mechanisms and being able to get in really close to the crop um, at this point is a more cost-effective way to get a similar result. But I think we're headed towards better detection and discrimination of weeds and particular applications to herbicides where you could target uh, Little weeds without hitting the crop. We're, I think we're headed that way. Yeah, great. Uh, this next question was also upvoted. Uh, they're asking if there, if you guys have any tips for um, banded, hooded, or between row sprayers. And a secondary question to that was, would you recommend contact or systemic herbicides for that purpose? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So, um, Again, I think this is one of those situations where the hooded the hooded sprayers are great, and we're seeing a lot more use of them um, for between row application of herbicides. Um, it's another one of those scenarios where the, the operator of that equipment, uh, you know, has to be cognizant or aware of of of, uh, of their equipment. So um, the hood only works if it's uh, if it's held near to the ground, right? So if if you lift it too far off the, the soil surface, um, it's possible to, to get you know, drift uh, from the nozzle onto the adjacent crop. Um, I don't, I don't have any particular favorite, um, you know, model or anything for, for banded sprayers or hooded sprayers or, or anything like that. Um, as far as uh, contact or systemic herbicides, it's going to kind of depend on your cropping system and what weeds are present. Uh, and how large those those weeds are. 
Um, so I don't know, Ben, if you have uh, any more information about the, the production system that, that the question relates to or. Uh, I've got an example, Ben, if it's okay. Go for it. Um, so one of our growers, um, some of our growers who have transplanted vegetables, um, not surprisingly, especially crops have a limited herbicide toolbox. And there's a relatively new pigweed that is to the pre-emerge merges work off. And they've been trying to figure out how to tackle it. And one thing they're interested in is hooded sprayers. I don't know if that situation is specific enough to for you to provide comment on, Steve, but um, if anything would make that would make that job more effective or easier, that'd be great. I know that they're using, I believe, um, glyphosate. Um, I think AIM is another common product that might be labeled, but. So did you say it was glyphosate resistant pigweed? Is that, or it was resistant to one of the pre's? Is that what you had said? Yes, it's resistant to um, the PS2 herbicides, which are, I mean. Yeah, so it's system too, yeah. So, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times if it's resistant to one of those, it's probably also got some glyphosate resistance as well. Um, so, if we're, so I guess essentially if, if we're going to look at a contact herbicide, we want to make sure that we target weeds that are small primarily. So um, things that, you know, have just, you know, say uh, three inches tall or less and, and, you know, maybe four true leaves or, or fewer. Um, so make sure we, we target small weeds. Um, uh, make sure you get ample coverage. Um, because, you know, we need to, to make sure that we essentially any green tissue that's contacted with a lot of these is, is what's going to become necrotic. Um, so, so coverage is key. Targeting small weeds is key. Um, those things are not unimportant, but perhaps less important with a systemic where, you know, the product actually moves through um, and can kill a larger plant. Um, the contact herbicides are, are usually more quick acting if that's important to the producer. Uh, something like Paraquat, you know, it, two hours later, you, you can see the symptoms from it. Whereas um, something like a glyphosate may take uh, seven or 10 days before it starts to turn yellow and maybe 10 or 14 under cooler conditions before it actually kills the plant. Um, so that that's important. Um, if you do, you know, suspect that, that you, if you don't feel comfortable with your equipment and you think you have the, the potential to drift, um, contact herbicides would probably have less impact on the crop if they drifted than some of the systemics. So that might be something to consider as well until you're familiar with, with the equipment that you're using. Yeah, I think the crop would be an important factor too. Uh, some, some folks uh, like to use Roundup between plastic rows or Paraquat, um, and they might take like a, an ATV or four-wheeler with like a tractor supply company, a little, uh, little sprayer off the back, and uh, hit that that row middle but um for a crop like tomatoes they're so sensitive to roundup that even with a hooded sprayer you really run the risk of uh maybe not this year maybe not five years from now but one year you they'll get smoked it's just <laughs> it'll happen um so some crops are a lot more sensitive to that kind of thing um, so this question is really the heart of it is really about escapes um, for between between row weeds and uh, Ben Whirling uh, shared a neat video with uh, with with Dan and I I don't know if you got it Steve but it was a video of a product called the weed zapper 
which is basically like a it's like a it's like a herbicide wick um, that you you have behind the tractor, but instead of actually being a herbicide wick, which is like a bar that's soaked in herbicide, and you wipe it across weeds that are taller than your crop, instead of that, the weed zapper is just a piece of metal that's got like fifty thousand volts of electricity running through it, and when weeds touch it, the, that completes the circuit, I guess. Uh, I've heard it's marketed as systemic because it goes all the way to the root. Um, what do you guys think of that? What do you guys think? Is that safe? Is that safe? Is it also proven? It seems kind of new. Uh, I have close to zero experience with, with that. So I, I guess I can't, don't feel qualified to say, but sure scares the hell out of me. <laughs> you have to, uh, speaking of safety, you got to be really careful with the, uh, I didn't realize 50,000 volts, but up there in the 15,000 plus volt range, you want to mess around. Um, but it does, you're comparing it to, I think, some organic growers who might be trying steaming or flaming. It's it's more energy efficient in the sense that it's uh, targeting the electricity is going right through the plant. And it is more systemic also in the sense that it's being uh, passed right down into the root. Um, I think... Yeah, but and I, I've heard anecdotes of a couple of growers who have them in our state and really like them, but uh, uh, that's as much as I can comment on that. Yeah, I think I'm I'm in a similar boat. Um, I know a lot of our weed science colleagues are really starting to um, to look more into you know electrifying weeds um, or electrocuting weeds. So um, I think we'll see a lot more information coming out in in, in the coming years on best practices for using electricity. Um, I guess the one thing that, so I've done a good bit of work with wicking, um, like you mentioned, Ben, um, and and kind of along the same line, what we want to make sure people realize is that um, this kind of management of, of weeds above the canopy of the crop, they should be really focused on escape weeds and not really a primary method of weed control. Um, so ideally we'd still use all the other cultural and, and, um, other weed management practices we have to try to avoid getting to that point. Um, and then use, use things like, um, a wick bar or, or in this case, uh, um, a, a zapper to control those escapes only. So it's not a, not a standalone, um, kind of weed management program. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks for adding that, that context. All right, we've got one more question in the uh, in the Q and A here, and then after that, we're we'll go to the phones. See if anyone wants to ask a question live on the phone. Um, so, the last question is: How do we balance the additional tillage in a stale seed bed approach uh, when we know that the more we till, the more we affect soil health? Yeah, that's a great question, and there is that obvious tension there between physically disturbing the soil to kill weeds and trying not to physically disturb the soil to improve soil health. And so um, there's some answers to that. You know, there are approaches that can suppress weeds without disturbing the soil. So I, to some extent, see the mechanical cultivation as a, in some crops as a last resort. Um, I think, uh, you know, tricky to balance and each grower has to you know, uh, ask themselves in the moment, is it more detrimental to the soil? or more detrimental to my bottom line this year of 
thinking about alternatives, which are going to, uh, you know, in the case of an organic grower, you might not have many alternatives. Um, so I don't have a good way of answering that. I think some crops lend themselves much better to reducing disturbance um, and you can get away with a lot less uh, soil prep. You don't necessarily need that perfect soil seed contact and um, you can be a little bit more aggressive without damaging the crop. Other crops, carrots and beets we brought up, uh, very tricky if you don't start off with a residue-free, uh, fine <coughs> uh, seed bed. Strip tillage is one alternative where you're just tilling in a narrow zone to get the crop established. And then you think of other methods between crop rows. So we've done a lot of work with that. It gets tricky, gets more complicated. You've got that edge right next to the strip that's neither here nor there. And how do you manage it? Uh, so um, I don't have a great, great answer for that. But yeah, it's definitely a balance. I, I think one point is just getting weeds early <laughs> at the appropriate stage, doing all you can to prevent uh, really minimizes how aggressive you have to be. And so getting the weeds at the white thread uh, and paying attention to keeping weeds under control until the point the crop can take over is something to keep in mind. So um, early and often with young weeds is required much less soil disturbance than trying to bail yourself out later in the game. Long mm -hmm. after probably not too satisfying but that's a... right um mike reinke our, our engineer here uh had a follow-up question mike maybe i think you should ask it yourself because i'm not sure exactly how to ask it sure um <clears throat> i was uh just listening to your uh answer there dan and i was curious uh this balance uh between soil health and tillage um is that balance going to be different uh, based on the soil type or the organic composition uh, of that soil? Uh, or is that a major player in that balance that you, that you reach? Um, I mean, I think it's a tension in all soils. I think it's probably true that in a lot of the sandies, you know, part of the detrimental impact of tillage uh, is breaking up of aggregates and things that might be more relevant and problematic on a, a finer textured soil. So I think about some of those very sandy soils in Swimrack area that maybe, you know, the cost of tillage is high. On the other hand, they're low soil organic matter soils. And so any burning up of carbon you do by tilling is going to have a higher impact. Um, I mean, I think the other approach is to compensate for tillage by adding more organic matter. So you think you're going to have to do some tillage to get a good crop and to kill weeds. Uh, you want to pay attention to adding soil organic matter back either through cover cropping, you know, uh, additions of compost or manure or whatever. Um, and so I think there are some very sustainable, high quality uh, farms that do a lot of tillage, but they just compensate by aggressive, aggressively paying attention to adding and protecting the soil organic matter they have. Great. Uh, thank you, guys. That clears the docket on the Q&A box here. Um, for folks who have called in, you can uh, raise your hand, actually. Um, with, with your phone, uh, you can push star nine. What that will do is we will see your little phone number in our little attendance box, and a little hand will come up, and that, and that means that you want to say something so we can unmute you. Uh, now it's time to do that. 
So we'll wait just a few seconds for any phone participants to to um, to raise a hand if they've got a further question. And uh, I don't think we've got any phone participants left. We've got one, but doesn't look like they've got a question. So uh, that's it. We're going to wrap up there. Uh, thank you again, uh, Steve Myers from Purdue and Dan Brainerd from uh, MSU for taking the time out of your day to talk to us about the white thread and early season weed management. Okay, well, join us next week for some talk on pumpkin planting. Um, and uh, have, a, have a safe one. Uh, we're signing off now. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. Thank you. You guys take care, everybody.